Let us pray. Once more, O gracious God, we draw near to you, for you have first drawn near to us. Place your word deep within us, plant it, that it might grow forth, water it, that it might bear fruit, and enable us to always be pleasing before you in your sight for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What is wisdom? What is it exactly? For some, wisdom may quickly be defined as simply being more knowledgeable than others, having a whole lot more information, being smarter than someone else, being quicker to understand something, to respond to something. For some, that's the sum total of wisdom, the sense of just understanding things a lot better than someone else. But the reality is, wisdom is much deeper than just having a greater understanding of things. It's much deeper than being more intellectual than someone else. It's much deeper than simply knowing all the right answers and having all the right facts and having all the right ideas lined up and in place. Wisdom is the application of all of that information that we gather from this world. It's the application in the proper and right response, not just any response, but the correct and right response to the knowledge that you have been given by the Lord, to the knowledge that you have gathered from your interactions in this world, from the study of God's word, from the study of truth itself. You apply it, and you follow it, and you live within it, and you walk with it, and it increases your understanding and as your understanding increases, you learn to apply that new understanding better and better, such that you become more and more wise. There's a reason why on all ancient cultures, it is the older people in the culture, the older people in the village who are looked up to as the wise ones. It's because they've lived a long life. They've had the opportunity to gain much knowledge and alongside that knowledge to gain much experience to apply that knowledge within. And so in years past, the older generation was the one who had true wisdom. They're the ones who had lived life, who gathered knowledge and truth and facts and learned to apply it through the pitfalls of mistakes. And so to seek a better understanding of this world, to seek wisdom would be to go to an elder, to ask them what to do, because they would have a wealth of wisdom with which to impart, to give. But there's different kinds of wisdom here in our passage today. In our passage from James chapter 3, I'm going to back up just a little bit to the beginning of verse 13 just to give a little bit of a context for where we come in there at verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. What is James talking about when we get there? Why does he suddenly shift to this? And it's because he's talking about wisdom that comes from above versus wisdom that comes from the earth. There's two kinds of wisdom that happens in our lives. One is good, and here, on the other hand, one is not good. Wisdom from the earth would be the same as worldly wisdom, wisdom that's derived from the sinful world around us, that is taught and trained by the sinful world, not just observing the sinful world, but you have been taught and trained when you have earthly wisdom. And James is against that here, and he desires for us, for, in, for his readers, and then us to seek true wisdom, wisdom that comes down from heaven that is poured out from the Father's hand upon his people, 
Because that kind of wisdom will lead to a right response in the world. It will lead to right living. It will lead to good conduct that bears good fruit that will extend and put forward the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. And all of that wisdom starts with God's grace. Because God's grace is what grants us wisdom. And that wisdom will lead to true humility. And in that true humility, we'll be led back to God's grace, which will lead to deeper wisdom and leads then to deeper and greater humility, and which will then in turn turn us back to God's grace. It's a cycle of grace that we live in. It's a cycle of grace and wisdom and humility because God will always reveal a lack of wisdom in us when he gives us grace. He'll reveal a lack of wisdom in us that it is willing to fill that his grace can fill, and that wisdom will reveal the pride that exists within us. And when that grace reveals that pride, it creates a deeper humility because we then depend on the grace of God more deeply when we see the pride bubbling up. And we humble ourselves because of that, because we've been empowered to do so. And we'll be driven back into that grace that will create that deeper humility, which will drive us back into grace and begin the cycle of wisdom and humility and grace once more. That comes from above. It is a grace that confronts, a grace that changes, a grace that drives us to want to know God more, to want to lay hold of what he has given us. And James tell us, tells us here in verses 13 through 15, he asks the question, who is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. False wisdom will create jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. False wisdom drives us from humility and toward pride. False wisdom will make us become jealous of others because we build ourselves up we become overly confident in our own abilities. And with that confidence, we become jealous when we see others succeeding and not doing it the way that we do it. We become selfishly ambitious against others, tearing them down in order to step over them to get to the top. False wisdom centers on us. And it comes ultimately from the devil. It arises from the world around us from the sinful world and unspiritual thoughts. But the devil is in the details with that kind of wisdom. When we stop to reflect on our thoughts, we may discover that our own thoughts have been led astray by the sin that is in us and by the sin in us being enticed by the devil himself and his minions. Our thoughts are our own, but yet that doesn't mean they can't be influenced, just like our actions are our own. But our actions can often be influenced by others. And that is the same with wisdom and thoughts and understanding that it can become led astray by the devil, by the sin within, and become false and centering on us, creating that jealousy and that strife that will then spring forward in verse 16 where he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It's a beautiful parallel there that James puts before us regarding false wisdom, that false wisdom will create jealousy and selfish ambition. And there, in that jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder. 
and there will be every vile or evil practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition leads to disorder. It leads to chaos. It leads to the breakdown of relationships and communication. And it creates vile practice. It creates evil practice. It creates sinful practices more and more layering up on top of that wisdom. And when we go down that path of false wisdom and we start having that disorder and we start seeing the evil practice, sometimes we stop and we recognize it in us. But how do you get away from that false wisdom? What well, reminds me of, I believe it was in C.S. Lewis, that when a culture goes down the wrong track and then it suddenly recognizes it to get onto the correct track, it has to backtrack to the fork in order to go down the right path again. And that's what we have to do when we see jealousy and selfish ambition in us, knowing that it will create that disorder and that vile practice within. We have to backtrack through confession. We backtrack to seek after the true wisdom from above. We backtrack in order to get back to who God is in and of himself and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we will begin receiving wisdom from above, as James promised in chapter 1. If you seek wisdom, ask God and he will give it. And he tells us in verse 17 that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He gives us a beautiful description of this true wisdom from God. The first thing he says is it is first pure. Pure is, means immaculate, undefiled and innocent, just like Jesus himself. And that makes sense, doesn't it? For wisdom to come from above, it should be pure because it's coming from God who is the ultimate definition of purity. He is the ultimate definition of holiness because that word pure is synonymous with holiness itself in this passage. Wisdom is holy because it comes from God when it comes from above. It is undefiled because it is a reflection of God's very nature. It is a reflection of God's own wisdom in himself that he bestows upon us. And so therefore it is pure. It is set apart from all worldly wisdom. It is separated from it because it doesn't come from man. It comes from God himself. And that kind of pure wisdom will dispel darkness because light comes from God too. Wisdom is like a light in our minds that opens our minds to understand the world and to understand how to act and to respond to the world. And so it will dispel the darkness within us and as we walk in that new wisdom, that wisdom from above, we will begin dispelling the darkness around us as we walk that path of righteousness. Like he said up in verse 13, if you are wise, then let good conduct demonstrate your wisdom. Walk according to what the word has taught us, according to what God has taught us in scripture. Walk in that path if you are wise and good conduct will flow. Good works will flow. The meekness of the wisdom from above will be revealed in your fair and righteous actions. And he says that after it is pure, and even out of that purity, you could say, that that wisdom is then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy and good works, impartial and sincere. I'll dig a little bit more into that word, into the peacefulness, when we get to the next verse. But as we move toward that, though, notice that it does head the list. It is first, after purity, it is then peaceable, which is a little bit of a pushback against those supposed wise ones in the church that James is writing to. 
Those wise ones in the church were creating strife. They were creating jealousy. They were pursuing selfish ambition, creating chaos and disorder within the church because they thought they were wise. They did not have the true wisdom from above, but false earthly wisdom. And that earthly wisdom was creating chaos. It was creating disorder in the church. But peace is the exact opposite of disorder. Peace brings relationships. Peace brings calmness. Peace brings understanding between people. And that's why that wisdom is gentle and open to reason and full of mercy. It's fair, reasonable, and gentle, that one who has true wisdom. He becomes gentle because he is one who is open to suggestions. He's ready to listen, and he will accept corrections. False wisdom can't do that because you are the center in false wisdom. With true wisdom, you are not the center because you know what you understand comes from God, and he is the center. So therefore, if you had to receive something, then you know others have something to give to you. God gave it to you, which means he's also giving it to others, which means you should be quick to listen. That sounds familiar from earlier in James. Quick to listen and hear before reacting. The wise person becomes merciful and full of good fruits because that wisdom changes them. They know they have received mercy from God, and so they are ready to extend mercy. They know, according to true wisdom, that they did not receive that mercy because they deserved it. They received it because they were weak. They received it because they didn't have wisdom. They received it because they were broken in and of themselves. And so the person who has received wisdom from God will be merciful toward others. That person will grow in his own understanding of the other's weaknesses because he knows his own. He understands that Jesus was merciful to him, and so he will extend that to those around. He will act merciful. He will be merciful. And that mercy must flow out of the kindness that God has shown to me. And good fruits will come with that. And that mercy may even be the salvation of others. Which reminded me of something that Bilbo, or that Frodo, said to Gandalf during the Lord of the Rings. Frodo says that it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. But Gandalf responds oh so wisely. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Pity stopped Bilbo from killing Gollum. And Gandalf continued, many that have lived have deserved death and some that die have deserved life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. We don't know what our mercy will do in the long run. Gandalf very wisely says it was a good thing that pity and mercy were in Bilbo toward Gollum. Because it wasn't up to Bilbo to determine and to make judgments against Gollum. And Gandalf sees that Gollum may play a role, and that role will be there because of Bilbo. We don't know what our mercy will do or what the good fruits will do or what our impartiality and sincerity will do in the long run in another's life. But we do know what James says here. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those with true wisdom will sow that peace 
And they'll see a harvest of righteousness coming out of that peace. They'll see growth and fruit and good works come forward as they live in peace, as they strive to bring peace to others. They seek harmony between people, but they not only seek harmony between others, they themselves seek to be harmoniously, seek to live harmoniously with those around themselves. They practice the very peace that they put forward for others to live in, that they bring forward to help quarreling parties come together and to find comfort and reliance with each other. And so James has confronted these people with true wisdom versus earthly wisdom. True wisdom comes from above and changes us. It makes us become those who are pure, who are peaceful, who are gentle, who are open to reason and full of mercy and good works, who show forth mercy because we have received mercy. But then immediately, James steps forward from having received the idea of peacemakers and the righteous harvest that they put forward. He steps forward immediately and he says, what's causing these quarrels and these fights among you? What is the origin of the strife and fighting amongst the people here? If they've received true wisdom, why are they still quarreling and fighting? Well, it's because they haven't grasped that true reason. They haven't grasped the inevitable results of true wisdom that drives us to humility, that drives us to submission, that drives us to confession of our own selfish desires. He says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? Your sinful desires are striving against one another and against what God has placed in you. You do not, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He confronts the people with the struggles that they have, the strife, the fighting, the warring that is existing in their midst because of their use of worldly wisdom. And that worldly wisdom is driving their passions mad. It is driving their passions to be at war within each person. It's not just passions at war between people, but within their own members, within their own selves. Their passions are conflicting and fighting and pushing back against each other. Sin itself is fighting with itself in them. And even more so as the Spirit is working in them to drive them toward Jesus. They desire things that they should not have, and they desire things that they should have but they don't have it and so they attack and they kill. They strike down their neighbors with words. They strike down their neighbors with gossip and rumors because they are jealous, they're envious, they covet and they can't have and so they fight with one another. This is painting a pretty bleak picture of this church, but it's a bleak picture of all of humanity in and of themselves. When we live out of ourselves, we end up in this position of ambition. We end up in this position of uncontrollable passions. We end up in this position of coveting and desiring that which we can't get. And thus it leads us to fight against everyone else. It leads us to put up walls. It leads us to conflict with one another. But then James throws in there, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't take the time to even pray for these things that you need. You don't even take the time to pray about these desires that you have. But then he says, and when you do ask, in verse 3, you do it wrongly. You don't get it because you ask it because you want to spend it on your desires. You don't ask God to fulfill your desires rightly. You only want him to fulfill your desires 
that you might spend it on more desires, that you might focus more on yourself. And he cries out, you adulterous people, you people who are worshiping yourselves and not God, you people who worship your desires instead of Jesus. That is what's wrong and why you can't ever get what you desire. Because it's either the wrong desire or you ask it merely to spend it on your wrong desires. You desire friendship with the world, but that friendship is enmity with God. If you desire to be a friend of the world, you will become an enemy of God, he says. All of this flowing out of that earthly wisdom, that worldly wisdom that just says, why can't we all get along even with people we disagree with, even with people who have radically different beliefs? Can't we all just agree to disagree in that all truth is all right? Whatever your truth is, that's the truth for you. It doesn't work when there is a God in charge of everything who is the determiner of truth, who has created this world to run with real truth. That all things can't be true simultaneously. The cat can't be both in the box and outside the box. That's a contradiction. Despite quantum physics. It's a, quantum, it's a contradiction in the physical world. You can't have 2 plus 2 equaling 4 and 5 at the same time. There are contradictions in this world. There are contradictions between the various views that exist in this life. And we as believers lean on the Word of God to inform all of our wisdom, to inform all of our understanding, to build us up that we might become those who confront ourselves, who put down our sinful passions, who begin to learn to pray rightly for those good desires, who avoid friendship with the world in that sense of being bound up with the world, of being merged with the world, so that we can remain friends with God. We desire to draw near to God, despite what the world might do in return to us. And then wrapping things up here with verse 5 and 6, we come into probably one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture. And I'm no scholar here. I'm just going to give a, one idea that's jumped out at me this time. Because this verse here in verse 5, or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Most Bible scholars have no clue where James got this quote. I shouldn't say most. No Bible scholar knows where he got it. Across all of Scripture itself, across even all of the Apocrypha, there's nothing that lines up with what he's saying right here. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. And even just simply trying to interpret the Greek, this is but one interpretation of the Greek. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, referring to God. But then others, you could possibly translate it slightly differently that he yearns jealously or he yearns over the spirit that he made to dwell in us that leads to envy, which makes no sense. It's a weird, weird construction in the Greek. But what jumped out at me as I was reading this this time, that it is about God yearning over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit, but he is talking about the spirit that he gives us when we come to be. When we come to be conceived, the spirit that springs forth in us, God yearns over that in that good way. He desires it to turn toward him. It made me think of what St. Augustine said that, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That we were created to understand and to know God. And so he yearns jealously. The right place for our spirits and our hearts to be focused is on the Father, on Jesus, on the Holy Spirit. And so 
There is a good kind of jealousy that says this is what you were made for. And so I yearn for you to discover that, for you to live in the blessing that comes from you following the wisdom that I give. Your spirit, your whole being was made to look to me and to receive new life from me. And so, of course, God yearns for us to turn to that. He yearns and wants us to know him so that we would be changed, so that we could then live in relation with him, that we could receive all of his blessings of goodness and mercy and the eternal life that he gives to us. But he gives more grace. When our spirits don't turn, he keeps pouring his mercy upon us. He keeps pouring his compassion upon us. He keeps drawing us toward himself, trying to fulfill that heart desire that he put in us, that restlessness to bring it to rest in himself. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That spirit that he has made to dwell within us, when it comes to humility, it recognizes its brokenness. It recognizes its need for something outside of itself to bring it healing. It knows that it cannot heal itself. And so God will give grace to that humble one because that humble one has received the grace already given. It has received the grace that has changed it to the point to where it can see more clearly its own sinfulness. It can see because grace has been given to it to allow it to see. And so he gives more grace. He gives more favor. He gives more compassion. As we turn ever more toward Jesus, we become ever more able to see our need for Jesus. But God opposes the proud, the one who is been given grace who throws it aside he will oppose that one because that one says I don't need your grace I don't need your work I don't need your healing because I'm fine the way that I am I can make it to where I need to be without your help God he will oppose that one even as he gives them grace to change them as they resist and they throw away that grace that he gives he will come to oppose them he will come to be against them even as he is drawing them to himself. He will push back in order to cause them to stumble to see their sin. Yes, God will cause us to fall sometimes so that we recognize our own brokenness more clearly. That fall is not sin. That fall is recognizing the brokenness that has led to that fall. You know, when we reach rock bottom, sometimes God simply lets go and lets us hit that place so that we will then see how terrible we are. And that is a kind of grace sometimes that he gives when he opposes us like that. When he lets us fall so far so that we will then be humbled by just the depth of depravity that springs forth out of ourselves. Many of us have been in that place. Many of us have been near to that place. And we've all responded here by the grace of God to resist and to walk away and to return to the Lord more deeply. And so we turn and submit ourselves in humility to God. We say, I cannot be king. I cannot be the center. I need your grace to grow. And that is where that wisdom comes in. That grace has led to wisdom, which leads to humility, which leads to deeper grace, which leads to deeper wisdom and deeper humility. That cycle that goes on and on forever as God changes us and grows us that we would become the kind of people he wants us to be. Ones who submit to him and go forward in true wisdom that he has given us to make the kingdom known through our words and our deeds, to become wise people who become God's instruments of grace amongst people who do not know him. 
And so yearn for his wisdom that he gives by his grace in order that you can become humble, in order that you can be merciful, in order that you can then know the grace more deeply and receive deeper wisdom from above. And so lay down before the foot of the cross and receive God's grace, receive his wisdom, and receive the humility that comes with that, that you would know Jesus more deeply. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.